Well, good morning. Welcome to Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. You are always invited to be part of the conversation at 850-414-1234, or you can drop us an email, perspectives at wfsu.org. Well, Florida's Organ Tissue and Eye Donor Registry is named for someone by the name of Joshua Abbott, the recipient of a lung transplant who passed away in 2006. And Abbott's story so moved the Florida legislature that in 2009, Florida's Agency for Health Care Administration, ACA, as we know it here in Tallahassee, chose Donate Life Florida to create a statewide donor registry to boost registry enrollment and educate Floridians about donation. So we are going to talk about Donate Life Florida today, but not just in the abstract, the way that it was put together and what it does and how it does what it does, but we want to get some actual stories of people who have been touched by this organization and who have in turn touched many, many other people. And that continues on to this day. And again, we invite any kind of comments or experiences that you have in this regard to be part of that conversation as well. So let's go around and meet the folks who are going to be part of the conversation initially, then we'll add you into it in just a little bit. First, we say hi to an old friend, Kim Gilmore, Public Education Coordinator for Donate Life Florida and LifeQuest Organ Recovery Services, which, in case you don't know, is a nonprofit division of the University of Florida Health Shands. And Kim promotes donor registration in the Florida Panhandle through story development, public relations, outreach, education, and appearing on radio shows like this one. Hey, Kim. Hello. Thank you for having us today. We're so excited to be able to educate during National Donate Life Month. And especially in the flesh and in person and all together, this is wonderful. We tried to pull it off last year, didn't quite make it. We did, and we wound up with PSAs, which I think are good, but this is better because I think these stories are going to move people. We, we know that they are, and we're going to get right to those stories here momentarily. But uh, first, we'll say hi to your, uh, your, your partner in grime here, Pamela Rittenhouse, donor, family services coordinator for Donate, Donate Life Florida and LifeQuest Organ Recovery. Uh, Pam providing uh, support and guidance and direction for the donor family follow-up program. Ms. Pamela, good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thank you so much for having us. Um, you know, we, we always call organ donation the gift of life, and it literally is. But all of that starts with education, and that starts with conversation. So this program, this hour together, um, can help save lives. And so we thank you so much. Beautifully put. Thank you so much. Well, adding to that conversation in a a very... Intimate way is going to be donor parents Paul and Rebecca DeFrank of Tallahassee. And uh, Rebecca, good to see you. Thank you. It's good to be here to share our son's story. Okay. And Paul, thank you for coming in too. Good morning. Thank you for inviting us. All right. And we'll wind it up with uh, Sarah Bender of Tallahassee, the daughter of Libby Smith, a heart recipient and a passionate Donate Life ambassador for years and years. And we want to certainly get your mom's story there. Sarah, thanks for coming in. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here and be able to share Mama's story. Well, let's start with that story here. Talk about Libby. Talk about your mom. Okay. Um, she was 35 years old and was diagnosed with a condition called idiopathic cardiomyopathy. Um, and at that point, they wanted her to have a heart transplant. And she did not feel like it was her time. 
to get a transplant. So uh, she did alternative methods and, you know, Eastern and Western medicine. And uh, she was able to sustain life for quite a while until about five years ago um, when she went into uh, cardiogenic shock where all of the organs started to fail. And at that point, they said that it was her her time to have the transplant. So um, August 25th of 2017, she got her heart. Oh my God! That and that had to be not just you know certainly life changing for her, but how did that impact you? How did you react to the fact that you know finally this was going to happen? It's always with mixed emotions. Um, you're nervous about it for for your family, but then in the back of your mind, you know someone else's family's hurting, and. You know, it's hard to rejoice for yourself, you know, when there's others out there feeling the total opposite, knowing they have to make plans. So it's 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 happy, but it's, it's very emotional. Yeah, I, I can see how that would be just the interplay of all those feelings, all those 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 different thoughts that are going through your mind on that. But but then knowing that your mom is is just such an integral part of a of really a, a a circle a continuum of life which you know what what better legacy could there be that's always her motto everything she did in her life she wanted to say i made my donor proud from the way she ate to what she did the way she thought uh, it wasn't just about her anymore it was about her donor Oh my God, that is wonderful. Uh, well, well, Rebecca and Paul, uh, talk talk about your 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 youngin. Well, uh, Alex's story uh, begins in Cuenca, Ecuador. Uh, we uh, did an international adoption uh, with him uh, and brought him into the country. Uh, but on uh, May the 9th of twenty twenty, a beautiful Saturday. Uh, he went off to work that morning completely fine. Uh, four o'clock that afternoon, uh, we see that someone's trying to get hold of Rebecca. Uh, turned out being his manager at the dealership that where he worked uh, in the service department. Uh, and when we found out, uh, his, his story basically was that he had fallen off of a golf cart and uh, had been... Uh, taken to TMH, uh, and where we finally caught up with him. Uh, He struggled for a couple of days there to be with us and try and communicate with us. On May the 11th, he wound up passing, and from May the 11th through the 14th, uh, we were dealing with the, the loss of our son and the organ do- donation. It was, uh, <clears throat> it was quite an experience to get that call. And then we, being during 2020, of course, we couldn't be with him very much. Um, we were fortunate enough that one of us could go to the hospital each day. And so we did get to spend a little bit of time with him, and he would squeeze our hand. He would, we knew that he was aware that we were there. Um, 
but he was not progressing in the way that they would like for him to. And he had um, a severe brain injury, front of the brain, back of the brain. And as the week went on, we learned midbrain. And so um, he he passed away sometime during, probably during the night. They declared him brain dead on that morning. And um, immediately we were brought into the organ donation process. And over the next three days, they took care of him. And and as we were there the night before his surgery, um, the next morning, we knew he was gone, but we were seeing how much he was cared for. And LifeQuest just stepped in and cared for us and helped us through that process. Uh, and they've always been there for us um, as we've gone through and as we've heard from his recipients. He was able to donate five organs. Uh, there were four recipients, uh, a heart, um, a kidney pancreas, another ki- the other kidney, and a liver. And we've heard from all of those recipients and, and learned a little bit about their story. And as you mentioned about feeling both sets of experiences. The night we went to the hospital, we talked about the fact that um, we were going to say a final goodbye, and yet we knew there were four families out there that were rejoicing, not at our pain, but it was a chance for them to have more life and for them to not go through what we were going through. What what a terrific, again, the what you folks have been through and that you're sharing it with us right now and looking at, you know, parts of uh, bits of Alex that continue that have made other lives possible just seems uh, just such a remarkable thing. Kim, it's talk about the process, though, that goes through with families that are just just like the DeFranks here that – they're going through such, you know, tumult in their own emotional situation, saying goodbye to a loved one, and yet there is another consideration here. That's got to be something that you that you have to handle with a great deal of sensitivity and caring. Absolutely, and <clears throat> excuse me, LifeQuest has staff in the hospitals who this is a passion for them. It's a mission. It's not a job. And they stay with these families and they work with them and they walk with them uh, through the process from, you know, the diagnosis of a brain injury and when they pass. And um, it is it is truly a difficult time. Um, what you've heard here today is that uh, in particular, they both are, you know, from the donor side as well as the um, recipient side. They're thinking of the other person. They're thinking of the people who are going to receive. The ones who are um, receiving are thinking of the people who are donating. And um, it's it's just a a circle that, you know, they want to come back together eventually. And we have an opportunity for them to be able to meet and talk. And I think one of the things you'll hear most often, the thing that sticks with me most is that it's just such a healing process. And I think that's the piece of the puzzle that 
is often not discussed. Um, I think the thing that people are afraid of, you know, we have to talk about death in order to talk about donation. And nobody wants to talk about death. And Mr. DeFrank will even tell you that, you know. Uh, well, we'll be back and talk more in just a second. Don't okay. Go away. We are back on Perspectives talking organ donation and how to uh, to make that happen if you are not already plugged into the, the donor network here. And let's continue, Kim Gilmore, with your thought here before the break. Okay. So what I was explaining is how Mr. DeFrank um, was really not in favor of his son being a donor. Um, and that's pretty common, I think, um, and he, his mind was changed. And I think he's had the opportunity and, you know, no one better than a donor family to explain what that feels like to meet people who live because your son was able to provide life for them. So um, these stories that we hear, they're real people. And these are what move the needle. These are what make a difference and make people to decide to register to become an organ donor. Yeah, what happened, Paul? Yeah, if I'm reliving that moment, uh, you're in probably the deepest, darkest grief of your life. And someone comes in and says, we need to talk about organ donation. And the last thing on your mind is not now. I, can we talk about this later? It's not an opportune time. Unfortunately, it is the only time. And you just kind of have to go through that. I remember thinking at the time, I'm not sure that I could do this if it wasn't that Alex had already checked the box and I felt the need to honor his request. Now, having said that, we have gone through this process, and our lives have been blessed to have been a part of it. And I have totally changed my mind to the point to where I am now an organ donor because my son was. A blessing that, uh, that kept on keeping on, if you will. Let's go to Reed and talk to him on line one if we could. Hi, Reed. Thank you for calling. Welcome to Perspective, sir. Hello. Yeah, go ahead, Reed. Let me tell you something. This this moves me. It really does. When I got my first uh, driver's license that had the box to check, I checked it. And I didn't think twice about it. And I was a very young man. But it it, it didn't occur to me not to check it. Uh, this is a life-saving measure that most people will never get the opportunity to do. Uh, but when you can, why wouldn't you? I was honored, Tom, and I'm guessing that Alex was honored to check that box as well. My question for your panel is now I'm an old man. How much good can I do? Boy, is that a, uh, <laughs> I see faces lighting up all around the table here. Uh, Kim, go ahead. I think you could go around the table and everyone <laughs> has something to say. Um, 
I think the first thing I would like to say is that the, the oldest donor on record is 95, and he didn't register. He was from West Virginia. Um, he didn't register until late in life. He was inspired by his son, who was a donor, and he donated to a 68-year-old. So we would ask you to never, never disqualify yourself as a donor based on age. Okay, so uh, I think your warranties are probably going to be okay, at least for a, a little while longer, Reed. But uh, I, I'm glad to hear that. Okay, you all have a great day. You do the same, Reed. Always a delight to hear from you here. But uh, uh, Pamela Redhouse, let's talk about the need first, because I think with all of the advancements in, in medicine in recent years and the fact we're coming off of a pandemic and all of this, there may not be a, a recognition of really how much need there is for organ donations right now. Well, and the need is large, and that is true. There are more than 100,000 people on America's transplant waiting list. And, and of course, there are a great many people who are registered. But I think you said a moment ago, or maybe it was the caller. No, it was Reed who said how not that many people get an opportunity to do what Alex DeFrank did and give the gift of life to those four people with five organs. And Reed is absolutely right because of the way organ donation works and the way it has to work. In order for someone to be an organ donor, and all of us who are registered organ donors, most of us will never get that opportunity when we pass away. You have to die in a particular way. Most organ donors, 90% of them, experience brain death, which is what happened to Alex, a severe head injury, and he experienced brain death, where the flow of blood to the brain and brainstem stops, and so your brain truly dies. The other 10% of organ donors experience what's called circulatory death or cardiac death, where the heart stops in a way that no matter what doctors do, they cannot repair it. They cannot restart it. So when you experience one of those conditions, that is what has to happen. Not that many people experience brain death or circulatory death, but that's not everything it takes. You have to have access to a machine to keep you doing something that all of us take for granted. We're all sitting here doing it right now. Your listeners are all sitting there doing it right now. In and out, in and out. Tom, what are you doing? You're breathing. You're breathing. And if you experience brain death or circulatory death, you cannot breathe on your own anymore. So you have to experience one of those two conditions while you have access to a ventilator and a care team who will use everything they can to keep your body going long enough to be able to recover those beautiful organs from from a patient like Alex to give the gift of life. And I read one government study um, by the federal government that said out of every 1,000 people who die, do you know how many people die that way? Three. It's three out of every 1,000 people. That is how rare Alex is. That's 0.3%. So we need so many people to say yes. Not many people, not many of us will get that opportunity to do what Alex DeFrank did. It has to be that unique convergence of Mm -hmm. circumstances that will allow this to actually take place. It absolutely does. And, you know, because of people like Alex and the DeFranks and all of that, this amazing gift happens. And I cannot tell you what an incredible honor it is to work in this mission um, to get to meet, you know, people like Sarah and hear about Libby who were helped by people like Alex and to meet 
Paul and uh, Rebecca, and um, I'm the person when there's correspondence between recipients and donors, I'm the one. It's anonymous because you have to protect health information. So when they wrote their first letter, donor families can write first if they want to. Not all do, but they did. And I got to read their letter about Alex, their son, with his big truck that had to be jacked up, was always covered in mud. He loved animals. And I will never forget that first letter that came in. I still have a copy of it, and I always, always will. Always. Sarah. There are a couple of things that I want to make sure to get out there to the people is there are so many misconceptions, you know, and we hear them all like, um, oh, they're not going to try to save my, my child or, or husband or something because they need the organs elsewhere. Um, number one, that's illegal. You know, you have the Hippocratic Oath that you'll save whoever or whenever, but there has to be multiple doctors that say this person will not be able to sustain life before they will even talk about organ donation. And so uh, I, I want to get that across because a lot of people think they're just going to let my family member die if I agree for them to be an organ donor. But on the other hand, I've seen uh, when my mom was at the Mayo Clinic waiting for her heart, uh, on both sides they do an honor walk where people will line the halls and the nurses and basically cheer them on while they go to do their purpose, whether it be get the heart or, you know, as a way to thank you for uh, donating the organs. And it is one of the, if you've never seen it before on YouTube or Facebook or anything like that, I encourage you to go look at that because it is just such a moving, the way everybody is treated with respect. Well, Sarah, in addition to what you're doing now and and talking about your mom's memory and all, you also have set up a, a, a special program to help promote additional organ donations and 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 keep keep this continuing, right? Yes, sir. Um, I work. I'm working with Donate Life to start. You know, really trying to get things out there. The license plate, um, I believe Kim's going to talk about the license plate. Um, I'm really passionate about uh, the sales of those. Uh, it brings money in to donate life to get education out there and more donors. Um, just because you have it on your license, don't, you know, don't leave it up to your family to make that decision for you, you know, type thing. Let them know that you this is really your desires and that way, it's not their decision to do. You've really made the decision. And like um, Alex's dad was saying, is it was easier for him because he was continuing the final wishes. Sure, but but how do you make sure that 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 those final wishes are adhered to? And it's not just oh, it can be overturned at the last minute. Kim, is there a, a legal form? How do you do that? So when someone registers, if they are under the age of eighteen. Um, they're obviously they're expressing just as their con- their desire to become an organ donor when they pass away. Um, when they turn eighteen in the state of Florida, it becomes legal consent at that point. So you know, heaven forbid something should happen and they're under eighteen. That's still up to the parents to make that decision. But after eighteen, it's legal consent, and so it would be um, it would be valid. It would be standing. They would be a donor. Um, I also wanted to add a little bit about Miss Libby, if I could, because I had the 
I had the privilege of working with Libby and Graham, her husband over here, um, for, you know, two or three years in the schools. And, you know, it's worth um, it's worth talking about the recipients and, again, you know, going back to, you know, how they both sides think about each other. Um, Libby, everything she did was to honor her donor. She went to schools with me. She spoke to thousands of students. She was so dynamic, and um, she just had this open and genuine heart. The students uh, connected with her because I think she was just so honest and open and wanted people to understand what that gift meant to her. I don't think she had the privilege of meeting her donors. She did. She wrote a letter um, but had not received any correspondence back. And uh, she didn't feel like that they owed her anything. You know, she wanted a response. But if they did not feel like they wanted to or, you know, emotionally could not do it, she kept saying, they owe me nothing. I owe them everything. So she wanted to get in contact with them to thank them in person. But um, unfortunately, my mom has passed, and it was nothing heart-related. It was from other things. But we said that she finally could meet her donor and thank them where she is. There she is. Yeah, yeah. And and but for the the Franks, you you have a relationship with the the recipients of of Alex's posthumous generosity. Yeah, I, I just affirming what Kim was talking about earlier. Uh, Life Quest it never leaves your side. They have been right there with us from the time that it happened, and we have a great relationship. Uh, we, Pamela and I probably talk uh, once a month at least on, on something related to organ donation. Uh, we just finished a, a set of letters to send to the recipients. And when you're on this side and you're in the grieving process, there's some therapy that goes into those letters of letting someone, letting these people know who this donor was uh, and who's now part of your life. What a tribute that really is. And as, as you said, gratitude was expressed in every one of the letters. However, for us... Alex's death was just so senseless, and yet to see po- something positive come from it, you know, it that added something to us that just his death had taken away. So it, it's, it's gratitude, but it's what we want to hear is that they're doing well. We wish the best for them because they've got a part of him, and we loved him. So it just flows through that. And uh, so as they do well, it helps to to soothe our our hurts and our pain. Well, Pam, uh, you had mentioned the educational component of this. And for, for those of us kind of on the other side of uh, – and uh, the demographic divide here, we can relate to this so strongly. But what about the younger people, those who are about to 
maybe get the driver license and make that decision. Is this something that you want to have on it? How do you reach them and say, this is at least something, guys, you, you need to consider? Well, and people like Sarah and her family and Paul and Rebecca are so important in all of that education process. And, and of course, Kim works in education in the, in the panhandle for LifeQuest. Before I had the honor of becoming the donor family services coordinator and working with donor families after donation, I worked in public education in the Jacksonville area for LifeQuest. So I've you know gotten to see it from both sides. But And, of course, whenever we do the education, we share the numbers, the need, and all of that, the process, how it works. But what is critical in reaching people of any age, including the young people, are stories, stories like Libby's of someone who received the gift of life, stories of Alex's and Paul and Rebecca's story about someone who gave the gift of life, and out of that tragedy, what this means to them. That, I believe, is key to reaching. And so it, it's so valuable. I mean, it's great for Kim to be here and for me to be here, but if, but if we had to have some people leave the room and have a valuable conversation, Kim and I would leave, and we would leave Sarah and her dad and Paul and Rebecca, the stories of the people who give the gift of life and receive the gift of life. That is the key, I think, to everything. I recall just personally a tale back in the day when heart transplants were very, very few and far between. It was at the beginning of the, the technology that allowed that to take place. And I had just moved from Tallahassee to uh, another – it was a commercial radio station out in San Antonio, Texas. And um, there was a prominent member of the community – who had had a history of heart problems, whose heart failed. And they had this individual at one of the big hospitals there in town just essentially barely keeping this individual alive. And the call went out nationwide for a heart donor. And through some strange set of circumstances, I learned that the donor was in Tallahassee and uh, was there at the airport when the flight with the magic cooler arrived, bearing that heart, which would then be implanted into this individual in San Antonio who would go on to live another 38 years. And it just struck me that this had come from a place that I had been for many, many years. And it was almost like, you know, this story had followed me to San Antonio, but the person here at the uh, at the other end, the donor, I, n- I never got any information there. There was a lot of privacy concerns, of course, back in, in the day, and the recipient family didn't want to say anything, but I thought, wasn't that remarkable how, you know, a cosmic convergence can happen here? We are talking about or- organ donations here on Perspectives. We would like to hear your story at 850-414-1234 or drop us an email, perspectives at wfsu.org. We'll be right back.
We are back on Perspectives, which is always available online at WFSU.org. We archive each show in its entirety, and usually it's up within a day or two of when it actually appears on the radio, so you can go back and listen to it as many times as you would like, or... For the first time, if you missed it when it's on the radio, we are talking about um, Donate Life Florida and the organ donation program and kind of how that has evolved over the years. We just went back with some ancient history there. Oh, my gosh, from the mid-80s. That was incredible. But here today, of course, there is additional technology and medical protocols and other things that make organ transplants a much more common situation than than there used to be. And how do we see that playing out over, over time? There, Whether it's, you know, retinas or hearts or kidneys or is, is there anything that cannot be transplanted nowadays? Is there a list of, of that, Pam or Kim? We don't transplant brains. Correct. And I do get asked that all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you were talking about the magic cooler, which – when you go in the students um, in the classrooms, the students always ask because they watch Grey's Anatomy and things like that, and that's where they get their information. And you know, and coolers are used. But one of the interesting things um, on the horizon is a thing called the Life Box, and you can Google that; it pops right up. And it's um, they're doing research where they're trying to create this box that will house organs, and inside of this box, it replicates the inside conditions of our body. So that, you know, the organs can be um, salvaged for longer, survive longer outside of the body because they really like it in here. It's nice and warm and moist, so <laughs> they don't like it anywhere else. There's And there's quite a bit of science out there, um, things that are going on. This is a field that I recommend students go into or look into. They, most of them don't even think about this when they think about medicine or science. This is an area that is really um, exploding with new information. Yeah, and and so many people think of it in terms of, you know, the bionic person where it's a purely artificial construct of some kind when really, as you said, Kim, we kind of have the perfect solution to all of these things. But what about rejection? That was a big, big bugaboo in the early years of organ transplants that many just flat out did not take. Well, and we still have rejection. It still happens. Um, every person who receives a transplant um, will have to take medication for the rest of their life. Some, it's just a few, you know, pills. Others, it's a lot. Uh, but that has come a long way also, and it's been tweaked so that, you know, uh, they can manage that better. Um, and I don't know uh, if you would like to speak about Miss Libby. Did she experience any of that? Um, she did have uh, mild rejection. Um, but literally it's just a matter of tweaking their meds. Uh, years ago, it used to be, oh, you have rejection, you know, your, your time's almost up. Now, you know, people really very, very far and few between do people die from rejection because the medicine has come so far. And, and I know, Sarah, this may seem a little bit frivolous, but uh, people get weird stories and conspiracy stuff out there. After receiving the the uh, the donor heart, did your mom change? You know, as far as her approach to life, or the way she interacted, or her absolutely not. First of all, anybody that knew my mom, she was the life of the party, and she still continued to be that way. Um, 
the only thing that made her different was the medicines. And it was, you know, was she going to be puffy that day from the steroids or is she not? You know, it, it's the same person. It's not like you're trading one person for another. It's the same person that you love. It's just a different organ. Yeah, because we invest so much mythology into the heart. Well, and that's <laughs> before her transplant. I asked her, I said, Mama, will you still love me the same? And she says, it's my brain that loves you, not my heart, baby. Oh. <laughs> Let's ask uh, Paul and Rebecca here, though. For folks who may be wavering, who are on the fence, who, oh, gosh, you know, these stories are just, oh, oh I, it, I can feel the love and the caring here, but I don't know if it's for me. Can you make the case to maybe, you know, move them down that continuum a little bit further to make an, a, a decision on this? Well, I would, I would say right up front, uh, Alex did not go into this expecting to be an organ donor. Uh, and statistics prove that out, that not many people get that opportunity. Uh, go through it. I, I would say the life that you, the legacy that you leave behind uh, leaves a, a blessing to those uh, who are, are left, and uh, they're left empty, and they need something to, to hold on to. Um, this is our way of honoring who Alex was and keeping him alive. Uh, so it, there's, there is great benefit to, to those who are organ donors. Okay, Rebecca, any other thoughts? And I would agree with that. I mean, it's, it is a gift of life to the recipient, but it is also a gift to those that are left behind. Um, it finds purpose in their death um, because most of these deaths, as you can imagine, with the circumstances that Pamela outlined, they're sudden, they're tragic, um, and so it, it just makes it uh, not something that you would desire to happen to your loved one, but it makes it takes away a little bit of that pain and gives purpose, and knowing it brings quality of life to someone else. And and that's it. It is it is not about the I or the me. It is about the us, the they. It's it is it is about community and and being a part of that giving community. Now, I, I did want to add, too, uh, my brother actually passed about a year before Alex did. And I never would have thought about it, but he actually had his skin donated to burn victims. So there is – he was uh, 64. So there is always that opportunity for older adults uh, to give back as well. And that's an, an answer to your question there, uh, Reed. But we have another caller on the line. Uh, his name is Bob, and he is giving us a ring here on Perspectives as we discuss organ donations and the possibilities therein. Hey, Bob, thanks for calling. Uh, yes, sir. So first, thank you guys very much for taking my comments. As someone who was a former perioperative nurse, um, I fully support organ donation. I've seen many families saved 
from both the recipient of organs, including friends who've received kidney donations, as well as comfort brought to families through donating loved ones' organs from traumatic situations. Um, kind of mentioning to one of your commenters spoke about with skin donation, it speaks to another side of organ donation, which is called tissue harvest and donation, where they basically use various bones as cadaver grafts for patients who've had spine injuries and other things. And one part of that that I don't often hear spoken about is the revenue side of things. The companies that will actually complete the skin grafts and tissue harvest turn around and sell the implants for sometimes astronomical amounts for basically things that are or parts that are donated out of love from families. And none of the compensation goes back to the families for which the cadaver pieces were harvested, so to speak. Wonderful points to bring up, Bob, and let's address those right now. Uh, Kim, Pamela, what do you think? I think we probably both could address it. Um, the first thing I would say is that LifeQuest is only internal organs. We do not handle tissue and bone and things like that. We work with those programs. Um and to the point of paying people, that would be buying and selling, and that's illegal, and we can't do that. We That would be going down a very dark place that we don't want to go. So Yeah, because you, you hear these, again, rumors and conspiracy theories that are out there, you know, international corporations buying and selling, you know, kidneys for 30000 bucks a piece, th- these sorts of things. But that then I think uh, compels us to say, how do you make sure that whatever you are intending as far as donating your organs remains totally legal, totally on the up and up, and that everybody is is taken care of in the most sensitive and caring way possible? What do you What do you do, Pam? Well, you know, in our nation, um, and and I I thank the caller for the question, um, and even if it's a difficult question. Um, it's better. It's better to get things out the in the open and and talk about it. Um, and it is a, a difficult situation. Um, but but as Kim illustrated, um, you know, we have to make sure that it's not possible for someone to pay for an an organ. Or it, you, we just absolutely can't do that. But in America, um, you know, the federal government controls um, organ donation very very carefully. Um, and so um, recipients um, like Libby, she would have been um, accepted in a transplant program and given a code which um, you know, said how ill she was and how desperate her need was. So obviously you have to have a match in tissue and body size and sometimes where, how far away the organ is will affect whether um, it, it can be matched up or not because it has to be able to get there in time. But so, you know, our federal government knows very, very carefully who is on the list, who has been waiting the longest, who is the sickest. And so the law in America is obviously that you cannot pay for an organ. The law in America is the sickest person who is the matching recipient in the correct geographic area is who will receive that organ. And hospitals do not know 
whether a patient is an organ donor or not. They do not have access to that. The system is that if someone meets a clinical trigger and that is a Glasgow coma scale rating of five or below, then the hospital calls their area's organ procurement organization. The hospital does not know whether a patient is an organ donor. They don't have access to that. It's all set up as carefully as it possibly can be to make it fair so that the most in-need patients, um, and they know, like when someone is put on a transplant list like Libby was, they know what day she was put on the list, what hour, what minute, and what second. And that's how careful they are at making sure that the system is right and fair. That doesn't mean there aren't still difficult questions in places, um, and, and your caller illustrates that. But it is set up to be as as good and right and fair as it possibly can be. Yeah, but still, it uh, it it bears repeating. I think to folks who are considering these sorts of concerns that you have to go through th- those established protocols that you were just talking about, Sarah. Um, I want to kind of mention something that you were talking about earlier, Tom, about how do I make that decision. I want you to, as the listeners, to ask yourself one question. If it was your family that needed the organ, would you do it? And if your family needs the organ and you would take it, why not give your organs when you don't need them anymore? You're no longer here on this earth. Give them to somebody else whose family could use them. Yeah, and and I also love what the the DeFrank said too that you're also doing it for those closest to you who may not be in need physically of those organs, but how you then continue to live the 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 primary consideration I think for all of us, you know, as we head towards uh, the inevitable is please remember me. I would add one more thing. In the United States, in America, it is an opt-in policy. So if someone is in this program, they've, they've chosen to be in it. Folks, so just a few moments remaining here, and I want to go around the table for any final thoughts that we have. Let's start with the DeFranks here, Paul and, and Rebecca. Any final things you want to say, Paul? No, I, I thank you for this opportunity to speak about our son and the therapy that it's giving to me for being here and being able to talk about him and uh, continue his legacy. Thank you, Paul. Rebecca? And I would just like to encourage everyone to think about being an organ donor. Um, It's a very simple process to become an organ donor, and um, the, the benefits to so many people, you can never touch as many lives as deeply as being an organ donor. Thank you so much. Sarah Pender. I have so many thoughts. (laughs) If I could leave with one thing, um, there's no greater gift than you can give someone else than the gift of life. And, you know, we talk about the gift of, of birth, but for the people who receive their organ and their families, it is literally like another birth. Beautifully put, Pamela. I, um, I, you know, I thank God for the gift of this work that I'm able to do and the people that I meet. And I want Paul and Rebecca to know that you have affected so many people 
because of who you are and the way that you shared their stories. I got to do a video of their story. And Paul, I still remember the ending words that you gave that I ended that video with. You said, I'm so glad Alex checked the box. It allowed me to see something I would never have wanted to see, and I'm so much better for it. I think that's a direct quote. And I will never forget your son. I will never forget y'all. Thank you so much. We're going to wind up with you, Kim Gilmore. So I just wish that every person had the opportunity to see what we see and witness what we witness when someone is able to lay their head on the chest of someone you know, a family member who has uh, received that heart, and they get to hear that beat. Um, we had one gentleman who did a Build-A-Bear and put the heartbeat in it and, you know, sent it to his family. Um, and so it is a very healing process, and, and I really wish they could see that. But the thing I would like to leave you with the most is I would like to encourage everyone to go to our uh Website, DonateLifeFlorida.org, and register to become an organ donor. Uh, to read stories like this, they're, they're real people. To go to our Facebook page to see, this is National Donate Life Month, April is, to see the events and activities that they can participate in, ways they can make a difference. But really, just go register at DonateLifeFlorida.org. Kim Gilmore, Public Education Coordinator for Donate Life Florida and LifeQuest Organ Recovery Services. Pamela Rittenhouse, Donor Family Services Coordinator for Donate Life Florida and LifeQuest Organ Recovery, along with donor parents Paul and Rebecca DeFrank of Tallahassee and Sarah Bender of Tallahassee. And also, let us not forget Libby and Alex, who I think are here with us also today. Thank you all for coming on and having what I know has been a difficult but also an incredibly uplifting conversation. And all the best to all of you. Thanks for coming in. On Perspectives, which is produced by WFSU-FM in Tallahassee, technical assistance by Taylor Cox today, and Kim Kelling, our executive producer. I'm Tom. We'll meet again next week right here on Perspectives as we delve into the issue of urban infill with all of the roiling discussion about development in our community. This is something that is being advocated as a possible solution or at least a mitigation. And we'll talk about it all here on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Take care.